Hello, I'm Huron Sani and welcome to Brandenburg One. Thank you for joining me today for more Baroque Now. As always, I'm joined by one of the inspiring musicians and artists bringing Baroque music to life with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. Across the table is Marianne Yeamans, and after her sublime performance in the Bach series of the Alamanda from Partita No. 2 in D minor, Marianne is here to talk with me today about her violas, pitch and tuning throughout the ages. Fantastic to have you with me today, Marianne. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Um, now, the viola is one of my favourite instruments because oh. as a composer, it plays a very important role. Uh, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about that role that violas tend to play in the orchestra. Well, the viola has such um, – it's got a great role because we're in the middle of the harmony, but we also have a really great rhythmic role and I find viola parts just so – they can be so interesting. They're really fun. Of course, playing the melody is always nice, but when you get to play the kind of meat of the sandwich, um, it's just – it's a really great place to be. Marianne, when I see you playing on stage with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, your viola looks slightly different to a modern viola that I've seen. Um, maybe you could talk us through some of the differences between the two instruments. Okay. So the I guess the main difference is – the strings are made of gut um, as opposed to the steel modern strings. Um, the We don't have any of the modern contraptions like a chin rest or a shoulder rest. And um, the fingerboard, um, I guess that's obvious what a fingerboard is, yes. um, that's flatter. And as a result, then the bridge is also flatter. Yes, and, and I've uh, spoken previously with Raphael Font about tension and about how that flat setup for the uh, Baroque or period instruments tends to uh, lower the amount of tension on the strings and that you end up using as a player slightly thicker strings, so not just a different material but a different thickness as, as well of string. Um, how does that uh, affect the way you play when you play your Baroque viola as opposed to your modern viola? Well, I guess with the modern viola, it speaks really easily. You would you just use a different amount of arm weight and also with the gut strings, it really produces this earthy quality and very conversational quality mm. and so it's quite articulate but you have to – you draw the sound out in a different way as to how you would draw the sound out um, on your – modern instrument with the steel strings. It's funny you mentioned that sort of different articulation because those are exactly the words Raphael was using when we were oh. talking earlier. He oh, was talk he was talking about the difference between a spoken and, and sung uh, voice, mm -hmm. that in a lot of the Baroque repertoire especially, what the composer is, is really calling for is a much more articulate and lots of consonants in the, yes. in the sound, uh, more like someone who was really, um, as a singer, working through through these different consonants and sounds with their bow and their fingers. Mm. Now, in terms of your section, the viola section, and blending, uh, do you find that your instruments all blend very well together? Um, I'd say we probably have different, different types of instruments, obviously, because they're all different, but um, it really is a matter of technique and, I guess, experience in terms of blending. So... Um, I personally would try to play inside my stand partner's sound. So in Brandenburg, I'm often with Monique 
And so I will try to play inside her sound. And so that's a way that you can, um, I guess, blend. <laughs> yeah, and you're listening together, you're working at that sound uh, and, and sort of homogenizing what you're, what you're doing. And then now uh, outside of your section with the rest of the orchestra, as you said, uh, often the violas are the meat in the sandwich. Mm -hmm. So how does it work? And how do you find the balancing act between being next to the cellos and the basses and then the violins on, on, your, on your other side? I think it's very important as the violas to um, always be a bit more prominent because we're often further back on the stage and also because of where we are in the sound, it's 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 kind of important to, to think up one level to maybe where you would be um, wanting to be. Mm. So, for example, if something is piano, which is soft, you might want to just be a little more than that because then you can really blend the sound like the harmony with all the other instruments mm. and in terms of what you hear then is the sound much harsher then that you're producing when you're next to your instrument as opposed to what is being appreciated in the concert hall yeah definitely so in fact that's something that you learn as you study that the sound that you're creating under your ear is not necessarily what is being heard out in the audience because it's a matter of distance and mm. all that kind of thing. So um, you still want to create a beautiful sound, of course, but you want to have a bit more, I guess on the viola, maybe a bit more edge to the sound so that that edg edginess will, as um, distance goes, that edginess will blend away. Mm. And I was also previously talking with Raphael about how that sound dissipates. Are there, in the orchestral context... Are there particular instruments you tend to hear more of with your playing slightly a little bit more loudly? You have your instrument making that edgier sound. Do you tend to lose the uh, cellos a little bit next to you or and hear more of the violins? Or what, what do you tend to hear more of when you're in the orchestra? Um, that's a great question. I think, well, first of all, where violas usually are in the middle, it's a fantastic place to be because we're just surrounded by everybody. It can also be a bit of a challenge sometimes because obviously in chamber orchestras you don't have a conductor. So you can be um, piggy in the middle sometimes in terms of tempo with what maybe the violins are doing and what the cellos are doing. And so then to decide who to go with is probably a big thing. Uh, but it's a great place to be in terms of sound and, and communication as well. And I know uh, ahead of your performance with the Bach series, you were looking into um, a little bit about uh, Bach himself and his own preference as a string player. And there was a, a, an interesting tidbit of information that you came across, wasn't there? Yeah, it was a great quote. It's that Bach loved playing the viola in chamber music because he just loved being surrounded by the harmony, by the sound. And it really is, it's so true. It's it's just a great place to be. Indeed. And I was reading about Bach's particular affection for the viola in a wonderful book called Bach's Orchestra by Charles Sanford Terry. Now, Terry references a memorandum written by Bach to the Leipzig Council in 1730, demanding four viola players for the proper accompaniment of church music. Now, with Baroque composers like Bach, Handel, Vivaldi, how do they tend to write for the viola? Do you have any favourite composers as well? Uh, I don't have any favourites because I love variety. 
But, of course, Vivaldi is so fun to play and um, it's always so um, vibrant, virtuosic. It's just fun, a lot of fun. But then uh, I guess to answer your question about the viola parts, you know, sometimes we may not have the most exciting part but it's really important. For example, if you have one bar of the same note, well, each of those notes, you need to know what's happening. You need to know the harmony and each of those notes has to have meaning. So even if you have a bar of Ds, you're not just going to play Ds, but you're going to know each of what each of those Ds is doing. And I think that that's what um, makes it quite fun as well because you're making something special out of not not something special. <laughs> yes. Well, in a lot of ways, maybe it could be explained in a slightly different way too, that you don't have the benefit like the uh, bass or continuous section of uh, the figures above your uh, notes. So you're not being given explicit direction as to what is the quality of this chord or that chord and which part of the sequence we're actually currently in. So instead of relying on figures to tell you maybe what sort of chord is going to be coming on top of your, your bass note, uh, you're working with your ears constantly to make microtonal adjustments to those those sometimes thirds, sometimes fourths, Correct. whatever the interval yes. might be, and depending on the temperament too, mm -hmm. um, all of those things make a huge difference to the appreciation of a chord or the sound or a phrase. Yeah. I think as viola players you have to be incredibly aware you're in, aware of the harmony, you're aware of what um, other instruments are doing, so who you interact with. And, yeah, it, it also makes it really fun when you're on stage and you're in a live, um, spontaneous environment because those things can also change concert to concert. So, Marianne, how do Baroque composers like Bach and Handel and Vivaldi tend to write for the viola? I know that Bach himself played the viola and the violin very, very well. Uh, and, and Vivaldi, as probably many violinists, uh, also played the viola too. Do they tend to write in a particular way? We have the middle harmonies. So we add, I, I guess in terms of harmony, we add the the thirds a lot, which is a very important, when you have the third, that's a very important note to have because it really balances the chord. So it's, um, that's also the note that you should play fairly strongly so that that harmony is heard well. Yes, and, and when we talk about the inner quality of, of a chord, we're talking about the difference between uh, maybe whether a chord is going to be not just major or minor, but in terms of a phrase, whether it's going to be some sort of more passing harmony or whether or not we're talking about cadential phrases. And, right. and it's going to lead us uh, throughout the piece in a way, even though it might not be the most prominent line, uh, you tend to also rhythmically support the violins uh, at moments when they're actually landing back onto the beat, uh, for, for example, in a, in a bar. Um, and in terms of the Baroque repertoire you've played, are there any special viola moments that tend to spring to mind? There are often uh, really great moments in, in orchestral works. I was just thinking actually about one that our audiences probably would remember because we played it quite recently and that is the Four Seasons. And the violas do get great parts all throughout 
those concertos, but there's one movement in particular where we get to be dogs <laughs> <laughs> and we bark. And it's really fun to play. It can add a bit of pressure, especially if there's, you know, there's usually two or three violas in a section for that. So you have to be very precise and you have to have the same bark. <laughs> you have to be dogs together. Um, but, yeah, that's quite a fun movement. And uh, just before maybe I play an excerpt of, of that from the recording that the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra recorded with Paul Dyer and Elizabeth Warfish, I should mention, and I'm, not, I'm sure that Paul wouldn't mind me saying this, that on the top of his score where that movement starts, I saw that he'd notated in a pencil, woof, woof. Yeah. <laughs> it, it literally is a bark, woof, woof. <laughs> So now I'm going to play for you the second movement from Spring, the Largo, recorded here by Elizabeth Wolfish, Paul Dyer and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra in 1997 for the Vivaldi, the Four Seasons CD. I'll leave that rolling for a little while, Marianne. Obviously, we can hear exactly how Vivaldi is utilising the violas here. It's very programmatic. Um, it's one of the most uh, iconic uh, movements in the, all of the, the four seasons out of all four concerti. How do you see the violas in this particular movement? Are you either some sort of counter melody or is it more of a scenic moment? How do you tend to play this, this moment when you're on stage? Yeah, it can, it, it's funny you should ask that because at the time you feel a little, um, a little silly, a little bit out there, um, but it, uh, at, at, at the beginning of it, it's quite prominent and you want it to be that way. That's how he wrote it. And he was encapsulating um, the season. But as you can tell, as the movement goes on, it becomes kind of meditative as well because it, it's so repetitive and all that kind of thing. So initially, it's very, um, it has a punch, but then it just becomes part of the scenery. Exactly. More drone-like. Yeah, almost, yeah. Now, do you do yoga or, or meditate yourself? I don't. It's, it's something that I, I like to ask because as a musician, and musicians are often actually uh, are lucky in this way, um, you do get the, the time to, or you should be taking the time, to reflect a little bit about um, what you're doing and maybe what effect that tends to have on not just yourself but also your surroundings and the people around you. And when you're meant to be barking like a dog, <laughs> obviously uh, that's one way of looking at it, but then there is that more meditative a aspect of it and, and transportative. This movement uh, for me personally takes me immediately to the countryside. Exactly, yeah. And it's a very simple, re essentially repetitive motif, yeah. but it is so transportative at the same time. Correct, yeah. I, I'm actually an avid runner and it is all of those things that you were saying because you're part of out out in nature and you're you're soaking in all of 
all of your surroundings and then you can use all that beauty that you see and you smell in, in what you do for your work as well. Now, we've talked a little bit about the quality of chords, major, minor, this sort of thing, and underpinning music, especially Western music, if not all, all forms of music, is what we call tuning. Now, you have a particular gift, don't you, Marianne? Well, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, well, I have perfect pitch. I'm not sure how perfect it is now, but no, I, I, yeah, I have perfect pitch, which is where you, you can just recognise notes. But um, the hindrance in it is that, you know, we would normally – especially when you're younger and you're playing modern instruments, everything is at around roughly 440. Um, that's the tuning frequency that we all tune to. But in the Baroque period, the tuning frequency was 415. And that's virtually a semitone lower. Mm. And then in the classical period, it's 430, which is somewhere in between. Yes. So, yeah, it, it, it has been a bit of a hindrance, but then... I've kind of got used to it and I think that's why I say, well, I wonder if my perfect pitch really is perfect anymore because I play so much at 4.15 and 4.30 yes. that now who knows. And do you remember what it was like as a, as a child? Do you have a, a recollection of what it was like and how you could perceive or conceive of, of notes and what they meant to you back then? Um, not, not necessarily, but I can just say that things would be – very clear and very clean and it would just be so it would be just simple to understand certain notes and I also saw um, shapes that's something that I, I and I think I still do shapes and colors really come come to life when you're listening to music and things like that I have heard and read about people with synesthesia and, and, and that sort of thing is fascinating to me. But unfortunately, personally, I haven't had the the experience. Although I do find music personally to be extremely programmatic, even when it's not programmatic uh, music. And I can imagine, I think, what you're talking about. When I was going through university, some of the students had this capacity. Um, and it, it sometimes, as you were talking about, was more of a hindrance because if they were singing in, for example, the, the Conservatorium Chamber Choir as I was and the choir had a tendency to sometimes struggle to maintain pitch, mm -hmm. um, you know, it happens to every choir, especially in a cappella music, sometimes the choir can um, drop and, and pitch can be flattened slightly. Uh, they would then start struggling in, in an almost totally internal struggle yeah. that was not necessarily coming out uh, through what they were singing, but in terms of their inner ear uh, to fight against what they thought was the correct pitch to sing yes. and then what was actually being sung by the, yeah. by the choir together. Yeah, it really, it definitely can be a bit of a hindrance for that reason. Um, and I remember when I first started doing Baroque viola, that was the big issue why I didn't really want to do it. Because in order to play at 415 at the beginning, I just ended up transposing everything. So everything down a semitone, just so in my head, it would correlate. But then over time, you get used to it. And 
but then playing at 4.30 was just, oof, <laughs> you know, who knows what vantage point you have for that. <laughs> yeah. And in, in a lot of ways, uh, maybe uh, some of our listeners are familiar with that, but the history of tuning and pitches is extremely interesting reading. I mean, you know, you, a lot of people might think of tuning and, and music and just assume that there's always been one way of doing it, but especially during the Baroque period, almost every town had a different approach and usually because of the organ maybe that was in the in the church there and you had certain places where 392 in and predominantly in France that was the pitch that was being used or 415 or 440 or 430 432 465 I yeah. mean it was all over the shop yes and you just need to look at organs actually to probably get a good oversight of just how varied um, mm. the idea of a, a performance pitch was. And it wouldn't be until in the 20th century, in fact, that we, we had standardization for yes. orchestral performance. And orchestras and also is also, well. yeah. <laughs> exactly. So in, even with modern orchestras, some of them are at, what, 442, 443? Yes, so. slightly more brilliant. Mm -hmm. yeah. And have you played in an orchestra where the tuning has been slightly sharper than 440? Yes. What was that experience like? Um well, again, you you just have to grin and bear it. Um, but I think also as I've got older and and definitely because of playing early music with the different pitches, I've become accustomed to doing that. And it's actually quite um, quite common now for orchestras to be higher than 440. So mm. it's something that you just have to get used to. Now, we've talked a little bit about what perfect pitch is, but I've also heard the term, and maybe our audience members are aware of this term too, relative pitch. So what are the differences between these two things, perfect pitch and relative pitch? Um, well, you would, most musicians would have relative pitch because um, relative pitch is where you have, where you have a, where you're given a note and then you're able to recognise notes based on that um, initial note. And so that's something that uh, all musicians are able to do because in our training and and it's just required. Um, so I'm guessing that, you know, all musicians would have that. But perfect pitch is you don't have a reference point. So you can just recognise a note out of nowhere type thing. Yes, without a, any need for a reference. I think it's a perfect description because relative pitch is something that not just musicians, obviously musicians are trained to have good relative pitch and that's irrespective of whether or not they're a Western musician or, or yeah. an, you know, a, a musician from a different tradition. And I noticed this when performing in the Karakoram program back in 2017 that some microtonal tunings actually and musicians who are used to playing that sort of music, their sense of relative pitch was extremely different to, to my sense of relative pitch, that they were much better at hearing the intervals between the intervals. Yeah. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And so going on from pitch then to tuning, Marianne, how is the viola tuned? So the viola has four strings. It's got A, D, G and C. Mm-hmm. So they're the same strings as the cello, but one octave higher. Right. And then um, in relation to the violin, the violin has the same A, D and G, but it has the top E. 
Right. So we have the bottom C and they have the top E. And in terms of now that A, obviously an A could be an A at 4.15 or at 4.30 that we've talked about. When you're tuning with the Brandenburg, to what instrument do you all tune? Uh, we typically tune to the cello. And so the cello will um, take the notes usually from the harpsichord or mm-hmm. from a tuner if we're backstage. And, um, and in Brandenburg, we do tune each string. So that's because of the different temperaments. Whereas in a modern orchestra, you would take the A and then everybody individually would tune their other strings um, on the, with the fifths. And is it because of the gut strings that uh, uh, tuning can sometimes take a little bit longer for, because <laughs> obviously we see it on stage yes. a lot more in, in, in Baroque performances and especially yes. with this, the, the Brandenburg. Yeah, so many things affect affect gut strings, even being backstage and then coming onto stage with the lights, your tuning can completely go out the window. So they're affected by weather, by lights, by all, all kinds of different things. So yes. yes, they're quite cumbersome in that way. And in terms of now the music that you look at, I know, and uh, obviously a lot of our listeners will be aware of this fact, that there are two main clefs that we talk about when we talk about music in the Western tradition. We talk about a treble clef and a bass clef. But the violas don't play from either of those, do you? Well, our official clef is the alto clef, where middle C is on the middle line. Mm-hmm. But we are very clever people because we don't just play in alto clef. We read alto, treble and tenor, sometimes tenor, and then sometimes also bass clef. So you have to be very versatile, yes. I guess. And I, I, in fact, say that to my students a lot when they complain about being given treble clef or whatever. But, you know, they have to be experienced at reading all clefs because as viol players, we do often get things in all different clefs. Indeed. And ahead of the Airs and Graces program, which was uh, performed in a fantastic regional tour uh, last year, uh, I remember preparing uh, several transcriptions for that program. And there were all sorts of sea clefts that were on ledger lines all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. So it just depends where that middle line is that will become the middle C. So yeah, it could be anywhere on the stave. So Marianne, how long have you been playing with the Brandenburg now for? Uh, well, I actually joined in 2001 uh, and that was when I was still a student at the conservatorium and then I did have some time where I studied overseas but, yeah, I guess I've been playing, wow, how long is that, nearly 20 years? <laughs> it's a, it's amazing and over that, that time, have there been some maybe a favourite recording that you remember with your colleagues? Was there a piece or, or a composer? That, that springs to mind? Uh, well, many, to be honest. But let's say the Chacon, uh, Brescianello. And it's because it, we play this piece a lot together. And so it just brings uh, happy memories of playing with my colleagues. Why don't we have a, a little listen to the Brescianello Chacon in A major that was recorded actually in 2015 on the Brandenburg Celebrates album. Here is Paul Dyer and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra playing Brescianello Chacon in A major.
And I'll leave that going in the background there because it's such lovely music. Maybe you could uh, talk to us a little bit about how this music makes you feel, Marianne. Well, currently it makes me really miss concerts and my colleagues because, yeah, it's such good times. Um, but we will be back soon, so that will be, that will be nice. Uh, I think that this is a very joyous piece. Um, it just brings a smile to, to our faces. Yes. And... Yeah, it's beautiful. For those of you listening at home, there's there's also been a, a, a slight increase in the amount of light in this room as well. As soon as, we, as soon as we started the music, everything just got so much brighter here. And it, it, it's exactly how, how Brescianello makes me feel in this Chacon. It's, it's just stunning music. Yeah, beautiful. Well, thank you very much for coming and talking with me today, Marianne. It was fascinating hearing about your personal experiences with pitch and tuning and, and everything about the viola. Oh, thank you so much for having me. The Brandenburg is proud of our long-standing relationship with principal partner Macquarie Group. Our partnership with Macquarie Group is built on a shared vision of infinite possibilities and a commitment to the very highest standards of excellence. The Brandenburg is also proud to be supported by APA Group, our presenting partner for the Bach series. Through our partnership with APA Group, we have the opportunity to connect Baroque music to audiences and communities throughout Australia.